Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from Stamped for Death, Death for Auction, The Adventures of Jonathan Knox, Book 2, written by Emmett McDowell. Eleven rare stamps equals death in six figures. Jonathan Knox was an auctioneer of somewhat dubious repute with a photographic memory. So when a frightened woman offered him a discount on 11 of the rarest stamps in existence worth something like $500,000, he became suspicious. He figured also that if the stamps had been stolen, he might net a pretty reward by returning them to their rightful owner. But he couldn't find a single collector willing to admit to owning them. And when the girl who had originally offered them was murdered, Knox knew that he'd be the next one cancelled unless he could find the person who would pay the growing postage due bill from the devil's own mail carrier. That's when the auctioneer found himself forced to play a very reluctant sleuth with his own life as the stakes. In this colorful, never-reprinted 1950s classic, you will encounter Jonathan Knox, this auctioneer's photographic memory, coupled with his lack of scruples, made him a detested necessity to many people, and too often, it also marked him for murder. Ellie Watson. She was better at bargaining than Knox, but when she gave him a bargain, it was more than he bargained for. Edmund Dorsey DeLong. Like many philatelists, he would stop at nothing for his stamp collection not even a killing. Henrietta Noyes. They had to kill her to break her hold on them, so they targeted her for murder. Lewis Plummer. His customers were interested in his goods, but not where they came from. This case was the exception. Everett Kirkland. He should never have been an actor. Too many people had seen his face. That could make it unhealthy for a man involved in murder. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from Stamped for Death. Chapter 1 Jonathan Knox was alone in his office going over the month's bills, a task that invariably aroused the worst side of his nature. Lights, telephone, the printer's bill, advertising, rent, salaries. Salaries. His blood curdled regularly every month when he came face to face with the figure he paid out in salaries alone. Jonathan owned and operated the Green Barn, an auction house of somewhat dubious repute. And though he was his own auctioneer, he couldn't get by with less than four employees, a bookkeeper, a clerk, and two helpers. Together, they cost him over $800 a month. That was in the neighborhood of $10,000 a year, which his staff extorted from him. And as far as Jonathan was concerned, extorted was the word. He ground out his cigarette, closed the ledger with a bang. Damn, why didn't IBM develop a machine for the small office that would do away with clerks and bookkeepers altogether? Just then, the door leading to the auction floor opened gingerly, and Ellie Watson put her head inside with a certain weariness. Jonathan stared at her unsmilingly. Ellie was the bookkeeper, his highest-paid employee, a willowy brunette, her dark hair done in a ponytail and bangs. She was an extraordinarily pretty girl, 
which was not accidental. Jonathan had hired her with a view to getting something ornamental as well as useful for the office, and he had interviewed dozens of applicants before he had found one exactly to his taste. Ordinarily, he found her delightful. At the moment, however, he was incapable of regarding her as anything but a $65 a week liability. Well, he demanded coldly, there's someone out here to see you. Miss Noyes? What's she selling? He interrupted. Ellie's eyes were her most striking feature, a clear amber, almost yellow in fact, and with the suggestion of a slant, in moments of stress they became more yellow than amber. They were rather yellow now. She's not selling anything so far as I know. She asked for you and I explained that you were busy, but she said she had to see you immediately. It was terribly terribly important. Well, why haven't you shown her in? Because you said you didn't want to be disturbed, she reminded him with some heat. But you already have disturbed me. Ellie drew a steadying breath. These first-of-the-month encounters with Jonathan always shook her slightly. Yes, sir, she muttered and withdrew her head. Jonathan had been working in his shirt sleeves and standing up, he slipped into his coat. He was a big, rangy man in his middle thirties with a lean and hungry face. A long, prominent nose and a wide, thin-lipped mouth. He had just reseated himself when Ellie ushered the visitor inside, saying, Miss Noyes, to see you, sir. Miss Noyes was spectacular, to say the least. She was slightly above average height and well-cushioned, a striking honey blonde with large blue eyes and black-penciled eyebrows. Won't you sit down, Miss Noyes? Jonathan urged, with a great deal more warmth than he had exhibited heretofore. Shut the door on your way out, Ellie. Ellie withdrew, closing the door with a bang. Miss Noyes sank into the proffered chair beside his desk crossed her long, fine legs, and clasped her white-gloved hands nervously in her lap. When he chose, Jonathan could be as objective as Univac, almost as accurate and every bit as cold-blooded. Thus, in spite of Miss Noy's flamboyant looks, he sized her up instantly as about 33 in fighting a losing battle against flesh. Her black linen suit was expensively and smartly designed to minimize her weight, and she was as well-girdled as a sausage. She was also on the verge of panic, he observed, with his customary detachment. Her breathing was far too rapid and shallow, and her blue eyes held a glint of terror. Mr. Knox, she said with a quaver in her voice. She swallowed and began again. Mr. Knox, I've been given to understand you're an authority on rare stamps by whom? Peter Armstead of Armstead and Hollis. I telephoned him last night long distance, and when he learned I was in Louisville, he recommended you. Jonathan was immediately certain that she was lying. Although he was well known to the New York firm of Armstead and Hollis, stamp auctioneers, they never would have recommended him. Armstead and Hollis didn't always approve of his methods. Mr. Armstead said, she went on, that I could depend on your judgment. May I see them, please? She gave him a blank stare, then laughed nervously. 
Oh, you mean the stamps. I was hoping you could tell me if they were worth anything. She stood up, her blue eyes reflecting a sudden embarrassment. I feel dreadfully silly, but I couldn't afford to take the chances. You will be a gentleman, won't you, Mr. Knox, and look in some other direction? She bent over, fumbled at the hem of her skirt. Then to his amazement, she began to pull up her dress and petticoat as if about to peel them off over her head. Jonathan stared in unabashed fascination. Miss Noy's shapely legs were encased about two-thirds of their length in sheer nylon stockings, topped by a fetching stretch of bare thighs. He was so intrigued that it was a moment before he noticed the brown manila envelope pinned to the underside of her black nylon slip with two large safety pins. You're looking, she said accusingly. He didn't dispute it. Like a great many blondes, Miss Noyes blushed vividly. Then, as the last safety pin came undone, she dropped her skirts and held out the envelope. A friend of mine had her purse snatched right in broad daylight. She explained in confusion, I didn't dare trust these to my bag. Jonathan sighed, took the envelope, which was sealed and which measured about six by nine inches. As Miss Noyes reseated herself nervously, he slit the top with a penknife, shook out the contents onto his desk. More envelopes slid out. Old, battered ones. Then his eyes really opened. If Miss Noyes had stripped to the buff instead of merely hiking up her skirts, it couldn't have produced the shock he experienced at first sight of those envelopes. The covers bore crude blue Hawaiian stamps. The rare 1851 issue, imperforate, brittle-looking copies on peller paper, heavily canceled but not defaced. As he spread them out reverently, he could scarcely keep his hands from trembling. Eleven, eleven stamps all told on six covers. He drew a long, shaky breath. Eleven of the fantastically rare missionaries, and on cover, it was Fabulous, a fortune lay spread out on his desktop. Miss Noyes had something to be nervous about. Jonathan continued to gaze at the covers as if bewitched. There were four of the priceless two-cent stamps, of which only nine copies were known to have survived outside museums. There were two of the fives and both types of the thirteens, three of type one and two of type two. He noticed where one of them had been expertly repaired and there were other minor defects, but that was characteristic. Are they valuable? Miss Noyes asked, biting her lip. Valuable? Good God, where did you get them? Miss Noyes hesitated. They belonged to my grandfather, she said finally. This was so unlikely that he wondered why she had bothered to say it. Jonathan's fund of information was encyclopedic. General or specific, it didn't matter. He had a mind like a blotter. It soaked up every fact it came across. And he had thought that he knew the location of every Hawaiian missionary in existence, at least those on cover. But these stamps were from no known collection. Of that, he was certain. Nor could they have been stolen, for he would have heard of any such theft. Moreover, he was just as sure that they weren't forgeries. He could be mistaken, of course, but it wasn't likely. 
It was Jonathan's misfortune that he hardly ever was mistaken about anything. Miss Noyes said breathlessly, Could you advise me, Mr. Knox, about disposing of them? Privately, you understand. I, I want to remain anonymous. That's possible, isn't it? Yes, he said. It's possible, but let's get this straight, Miss Noyes. I won't handle these stamps until I know exactly how they came into your possession. But I told you, did you expect me to believe that? Miss Noyes' blue eyes narrowed. I'm not such a fool as to bring you stolen stamps that could be traced as easily as these. As far as their history goes, you'll just have to take my word. Now, do you want to handle them or not? Jonathan didn't reply immediately. At 20%, which would be his commission, the transaction should net him between ten dollars and $15,000 at the very least. I can't afford to turn it down, he admitted dryly. Miss Noyes appeared relieved. That's settled then. May I have a receipt, please? Make it out to Henrietta Noyes. He scrawled out a receipt, listing the stamps by their Scott numbers, and handed it to her. Then he gathered up the covers with reverent care and returned them to their envelope, put the envelope in the office safe. One more thing, she added. I must have a thousand in advance. Jonathan did some rather rapid figuring, said, I can give you a check. She shook her head. No, I want cash, Mr. Knox. I don't keep that much cash on hand. I won't be able to get it for you until after the bank's open tomorrow. That'll be fine, she agreed without hesitation. Now that the transaction was over, she appeared eager to leave. Her nervousness, though, had increased rather than lessened. She rose and started for the door. Just a moment, Miss Noyes. Where can I get in touch with you? You can't. I'll get in touch with you, she said flatly. Jonathan stood up. What are you afraid of, Miss Noyes? Her blue eyes took on a surprisingly steely glint. Mr. Knox, how much will those stamps bring? That's difficult to say. $50,000, perhaps, perhaps more. And what is your commission? He grinned, a trifle wryly, seeing where she was leading. Under these terms, 30%. Her nostrils expanded in anger. All right, she agreed in a hard voice. 30%. But for that kind of money, you know all you ever need to know. I'll drop by in the morning to pick up the thousand dollars. She turned to the door again, hesitated, then squared her shoulders. Jonathan didn't miss the sudden sick look of fear that filled her blue eyes, and he said, At least let me call a cab for you. It isn't likely you can find one in this neighborhood. Would you please? By the time the taxi arrived, she had managed to recover her composure to some extent. I feel better already just having them off my hands, she said in an attempt at lightness, but it didn't carry any conviction. Without comment, he escorted her outside and put her in the cab making a mental note of the driver's number as he did so. Miss Noyes gave him her gloved hand through the window. Goodbye, Mr. Knox. I'll see you first thing in the morning. Where to, lady? The cabbie asked. Straight ahead. Jonathan stood on the sidewalk watching them drive off. His last glimpse of Henrietta Noyes showed her sitting back in the seat as inconspicuously as possible. Then the cab turned a corner and she was gone. In the beginning, the green barn had been a livery stable. 
a long, narrow, windowless, two-story brick building with a big entrance through which carriages and wagons had driven in off the street. A smaller pedestrian door was set into the big double carriage doors. It was standing open, and Jonathan went through it, passing from the bright afternoon sunlight directly onto the cool, cavern-like auction floor. The stalls had been removed, leaving a high-ceilinged chamber which was crowded and jammed with used merchandise, refrigerators, books, TV sets, beds, dishes, chairs, pictures, practically anything could be found in that conglomeration. Auctions were held once a week, and the merchandise was there strictly on a consignment basis. He glanced at his watch, saw that it was nearly closing time, and beckoned Ellie Watson to come to his office, which was at the back of the building. Ellie was helping Walter Reed, the clerk, list the lots for the forthcoming Thursday auction. She put down her papers, trailed Jonathan inside with a conspicuous lack of enthusiasm. Close the door, he bade her. Going to the safe, he took out the manila envelope containing the missionaries and handed it to her. Ellie, there are documents in this worth a quarter of a million dollars, which was an exaggeration, but he wanted her to be properly impressed. She was. She looked at the envelope in alarm, her eyes growing more and more yellow. A quarter of a million dollars? She breathed. Yes. He glanced at his watch again. You can leave now. Call a cab. Take this envelope out to my house and wait for me. But Mr. Knox, it's an emergency. He cut short her protests. I have a call to make when I leave here, and I don't want to carry them around with me. Here are my door keys. Make yourself at home, but whatever you do, don't let this envelope out of your sight. I'll be there as soon as I possibly can, and for God's sake, don't mention any of this to Reed. That fellow's tongue is hinged in the middle and loose at both ends. But I have a date tonight, Ellie finally managed to say. Oh, he said in surprise. Ellie, he knew, had been married unhappily, divorced recently, and was at the stage where she viewed all men as her natural enemies. He was rather disgruntled because she hadn't told him that she had started to go out again, though it was certainly none of his business. I do go out occasionally, she said tartly, as if reading his mind. It's that troop of Indian dancers. They'll be here only one night. Break your date. I'll buy you tickets for the next show you want to see. Ellie stared at the manila envelope with a certain frightened fascination. And dinner? Now look here, Ellie. That's what I'll be giving up, she informed him coolly. All right. Dinner. And a nightclub afterwards. A nightclub? Do you realize all that will cost at least $50? She shrugged, her expression devoid of pity. He said, I'll be lucky if I get by with $50. Be reasonable, Ellie. Very well, she said. I'll split it down the middle, $25 cash in advance. Jonathan was shocked. You aren't serious. She stared at him coldly. Yes, he said, I guess you are. He took out his wallet and handed her a $20 bill, then reluctantly another five. This is extortion. Ellie didn't appear especially moved. Is the stuff in this envelope actually worth a quarter of a million dollars? Yes, the prospect of carrying $250,000 around in an envelope really seemed to hit her for the first time. Oh, God, what if I should lose it? Jonathan gave her a chilling glance. Take the first plane for South America, he said, and meant it. 
We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from Stamped for Death. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.